can be seated. We're going to be a little more topical this morning, but uh, we are going to look briefly at Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 through 40. So you can look there in your Bibles. We'll talk about it in a few minutes. Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 through 40. Uh, when I was a freshman in college, I was in the cafeteria one night. I went to Lipscomb University, which is uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a school of about 6,000 people, or at least it was then, which I thought was pretty small until I started working at Hendrix. But um, there was one cafeteria at Lipscomb. So you can imagine 6,000 people, one cafeteria. It's a pretty big cafeteria. And one night, uh, I had gotten some, some cereal, a large bowl of cereal to eat, which is the type of thing that you do when you're a freshman in college. And uh, I was sitting with some of my friends, and before I had even taken a bite out of this bowl of cereal, uh, I reached for something, I did something, and the bowl of cereal fell over into my lap. And I did that thing where um, if you spill something on yourself and you sort of jump up and gasp. And I looked down and there was a, an entire bowl of milk and uh, cereal, Lucky Charms, something like that, just bedazzled all over me. It looked like I had had a, a terrible accident, if you follow me. And I looked up and I realized that I was going to have to walk through... Um, the, probably thousands of people in this cafeteria to get out. Uh, there was only one way in and one way out, and I was going to have to do it uh, looking like this. And I looked at my friends, and they were all kind of frozen looking at me. Uh, but one person, um, Keith Brown, uh, took his bowl of cereal and dumped it in his lap. And we stood up and we walked out together. That's my best illustration of friendship, which is coming alongside of someone else so that they are not alone. So friendship uh, and relationships more broadly, I think, are sort of like oil for the engine of your life. In other words, as you go through different things in your life, hard things, uh, good things, the peaks and valleys of life, uh, relationships sort of grease those movements. It was easier for me to walk out of the cafeteria with someone else. It's easier to raise children, to read your Bible, to go through financial hardships or health problems with someone else. Without friends and family and without the fellowship of the body of Christ, your life will sort of dry out and, and rust over. Uh, I read an article a couple years ago about the death of George Bell. You don't know who George Bell is because no one did until the New York Times did this article. Um, George Bell, at this point, was one of 50,000 people who die in New York City every year. And the article walked through what happens when someone dies alone in this massive city. And through lots of detective work, the Times was able to, to dig up this uh, this person, who he was, the long life of George Bell, who nevertheless died alone. And so the Times said this, dozens of people who never knew him, all cogs 
in the city's complicated machinery of mortality would find themselves settling the affairs of an ordinary man who left this world without anyone in particular noticing. So you can imagine there was this huge outpouring after this article was run of emails and messages, uh, people admitting that dying alone was their greatest fear, that they were going to reach out to uh, loved ones they had grown apart from, to lonely brothers and sisters and friends, and that they would never again let people slip out of their lives unnoticed. So I said relationships are like oil. It might be more true to say that they are like food or water. That important. And that's why the Bible has a lot to say about relationships. In fact, we might argue that the entire Bible is about relationships. For one, what we learn in Scripture is the doctrine of the Trinity, which says that uh, God has existed for all time as three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, God himself is relationship. Not just that he's in a relationship, though he is with us, but that he is himself relationship. Moreover, God created us, human beings, so that we could be in relationship with him. Which, by the way, is the most selfless thing that a perfect being could do, right? Is to create other beings to love him and enjoy him. And so if you're familiar with our catechism, the, the famous first question says, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. In other words, we are made to be in a relationship with our Maker, our Redeemer, our Sustainer. And that is why the story of George Bell hits us so hard. It's so poignant. Because people like us who are made in the image of a relational God should not be alone. So as we think about relationships in this world, I think it's helpful to do it in two ways. To think about relationships vertically and to think about them horizontally. Uh, Vertical being our relationship with God. For Christians, that's our relationship with God through the gospel. It has to do with repentance and faith and prayer, uh, the communion that we enjoy with God. Horizontal is our relationship with friends and family, with uh, our peers in this life if you will, the people uh, around us inside and outside the body of Christ. So we see this uh, vertical horizontal distinction uh, in Scripture when Jesus summarizes the law in Matthew 22. The Pharisees ask, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the Ten Commandments. And he's talking about what we call the first table of the law, which is the first four. And the second table of the law, which are the next six. The first four uh, commandments, the first table of the law, deal with our relationship with God vertically. The next six deal with our relationships with other people horizontally. So at the very bottom of life, this is what God asks of you to love him and to love other people. And these two, I think, are intimately connected, the vertical and the horizontal. In fact, I would argue this, that 
in this life, in God's world, you always deal with, peop- with other people the way that you think God has dealt with you. You deal with other people the way that you think God has dealt with you. So either your love for God will play itself out in love for other people, or your dissatisfaction or insecurity or maybe even anger against God is going to play itself out with other people. So we'll spend a couple minutes here uh, thinking about friends and families, and then we'll look at uh, what the Christian worldview says. We'll start with friends. So one of my conversational tactics as a campus minister, uh, believe it or not, I get in a lot of awkward social situations. And one of those situations is when I'm talking to someone I know and someone else walks up and sort of uh, engages or even takes over the conversation. That leaves me kind of standing there. Now, if uh, this student has been well-trained, then they will introduce me to the other person, but sometimes they don't. And so what I like to do in that situation is just say, hey, how do you guys know each other? And that is a question that, that makes people slam on the brakes because they look at each other and they start thinking and they're like, you know, maybe in the dorm or intramurals or, you know, our, our freshman trip or, and nobody can remember really how they met someone, uh, which is my point. Uh, I think that friendships are generally pretty fluid. They're organic. They're not usually planned or on purpose. So my illustration is friendships are like flowers. Friendships are like flowers. So what do I mean by that? Well, our old house, uh, before we bought a house in Conway, we lived downtown Conway uh, on a street called Watkins, uh, sort of old town Conway, an older house. And someone at this house had planted, uh, I assume, a, a bunch of bulbs, a bunch of flowers at some point. And so you can imagine our surprise uh, the first spring when all of these flowers uh, sort of exploded. There were roses, there were other flowers. My wife could tell you, I don't know. Um, And they were beautiful for a while, and then they would sort of fade out, and they would, you know, some of them would pop back up and stick around for a little while. Friendship, I'm convinced, is sort of like flowers. Uh, So if you think about what friendships looked like when you were a kid, school, sports, etc., it looks a certain way, and on into high school. But as you get older, friendships really start to change. And so I try to warn my, my college students that when you leave college, friendships really change quickly. Some of you have experienced this. You get a job, you get a spouse, uh, you have children, and you move across the country, which is what we did. And uh, eventually, you are not keeping up with people in the same way that you did. Your perspective has sort of shifted. And so quite naturally, a lot of your friendships sort of recede into the background. Uh, I saw some, someone's joke about this not too long ago. It said, um, no one talks about Jesus' greatest miracle, which was having 12 close friends in his 30s. So if... <laughs> you're in your 30s or you've experienced that, then you know it's very difficult to do that. So most friendships, I think, are like flowers. But in our yard on Watkins Street, beautiful downtown Conway, we also had a tree, a couple of them actually, but one in particular 
uh, over the patio a massive, and I mean massive, pecan tree, uh, which was a little bit of the bane of my existence because but the pecans only came around once every two years, and uh, in between that, there was a lot of stuff that had to get cleaned up that it would drop. But I digress. Uh, huge pecan trees. And so that's our other main category of relationships, family. If friendships are like flowers, then family are trees. What do I mean by that? Well, family, at least a properly functioning family, is more permanent than even the best of friendships. Family roots run deep. Their branches spread wide over life over a long period of time. Family can provide shade and protection. They can sustain you in lean and hard times. And family is in many ways permanent, of course. Your family is generally, usually yours from the cradle to the grave. So think about how many friendships you have lost in your life You've probably known casually hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, uh, the majority of whom just sort of faded away from your life and you don't even really remember or think about. But if you have experienced a divorce or a death in your family or some sort of other major falling out or break in your family, then you know that that is like uh, having a tree, a big tree, ripped out of your yard. It's violent, it's disorienting, and it leaves a gaping hole in your life. Uh, some of you may have seen uh, right after a tornado comes through, right? And there's always giant trees and, and root systems that have been pulled out of the ground. And it gets at some of the trauma uh, of experiencing a broken relationship in your family. So friends and family, God has created us so that we need both of those things. A healthy yard is full of growth. You need spontaneous, sort of short-term, wildflower-type uh, friendships. You need a few trimmed, maybe, and groomed uh, rose bushes of intimate, long-term friendships. And you need big, solid, oak-like family relationships. Interestingly, Christians, I believe, have a sort of third category of relationships that is somewhere between friends and family, and that is our relationships inside the church, inside the body of Christ, the fellowship of the saints, we say. So uh, we see this fellowship most clearly in the book of Acts, although it's all throughout the Bible, and we'll talk about that a little more in, in a bit. Hebrews 10 uh, along these lines tells us not to neglect meeting together or not to neglect the assembly. And so we sort of live in an age and culture in which technology in particular uh, has made it possible for even very well-meaning Christians to uh, sort of neglect the assembly. Um, and we have to be careful here that we're not just patting ourselves on the back for being here. But uh, technology means that you could probably pull up a better sermon right now on your phone than I'm preaching and do it uh, quickly. But what you can't do is you cannot pull up on your phone a fellowship of believers on the internet, um, at least not a living dynamic one. So it is uh, no accident that a local, uh, a local churchless Christian is actually nowhere in the Bible. Uh, that thing does not exist. It's not a category that's in Scripture. 
John Stott said that a churchless Christian is a grotesque anomaly. That's like a finger or a foot uh, laying in the floor. When the part is separated from the body, then something is radically wrong. So Christians are meant to be in a living and breathing uh, uh, body of Christ, the fellowship of believers, this sort of third category of relationships, locking eyes, uh, shaking hands, uh, talking about life, being with each other. And so we'll talk more about what that looks like. So how do we do this? How do we uh, relationship as Christians? And, and how does the Christian worldview help us? Well, I think three things. Uh, first, Christianity keeps you from being all about yourself. Uh, second, Christianity keeps you from being all by yourself. And third, Christianity keeps you from losing it all. So Christianity keeps you from being all about yourself, all by yourself, and from losing it all. How does this happen? Well, um, it keeps you from being all about yourself. It's one of those paradoxes, really, in life that the more about yourself you are, the less people really want to be around you. And the more about other people you are, the more people are attracted to you. Jesus is the best example of this. If you think about, no one had more reason to be about himself than Jesus. He was a perfect person, the Son of God, sinless, uh, power to heal. Dealing with anybody was a step down. It was a condescension for Jesus. And so he was peerless, and yet he took note of all different kinds of people, of cripples and lepers and paralytics and demoniacs. Jesus was deeply interested in every wildflower, every weed that grew in his yard. He was a friend to the friendless, but he also had some carefully cultivated uh, friends and his disciples. They were people he had invited into his life whom he had said, follow me, and they did. But here's the thing. None of those people were around when Jesus died. He was alone. By then they had all abandoned him. And you and I would have too, right? I'm convinced. And more than that, on the cross, uh, in the Christian worldview, Jesus' relationship with his father was uh, ruptured as he absorbed our sin and paid our debt on the cross. So why did he do that? He did it because it was the only way to be your friend. To be your friend. John uh, 15 says this. This is my commandment. This is Jesus speaking. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Friendship. Why do we find self-absorbed people so distasteful? I think it's because we know uh, deep down that God has made us for relationships. And so to be uh, sort of anti-relationship in that way, to be um, narcissistic, uh, we pick up on that uh, instinctively, intuitively. We realize that uh, when one of those people is around. And if you don't know anybody like that, you may be that person. So uh, be careful. Um, so we know that it's wrong to be 
egotistical, but we do it anyway. We can't help comparing ourselves to others. We do it all the time, mostly because it makes us feel better. So C.S. Lewis said, uh, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. I mean, that's a huge part of uh, social media, right? It's sort of curated one-upmanship in regards to other people. But what do you do if you don't feel like that? What do you do if you feel always like a sort of inferior person? And anytime you compare yourself to others, you feel uh, worse. Well, I think that's actually more similar than you think. Uh, If you're devastated by not having as much money uh, or not being as good-looking or as funny as someone else, then that is still a sort of self-absorbed inward focus. It's just working the other way. And so all this makes relationships very difficult. Uh, There's a book um, CCEF guy named Ed Welch wrote. Um, I've read the book, but I don't remember the book as well as the title, which is this, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. A Mess Worth Making. And that's about the truest title that I've ever heard because as sinful people in relationship with each other, uh, that creates a lot of messiness. And so the temptation... Uh, a lot of times it's to take our horizontal relationships and use that as our sort of gauge of whether we're healthy, uh, what our status is. But the gospel changes that. Christianity gives you the tools to pursue relationships from somewhere other than uh, a starting point other than your own ego. And Jesus is the model for that, of course, but he's also much more because he said, I've loved you. I've laid down my life for you. Uh, One of the old RUF pastors, uh, John Stone, likes to say, uh, friendship is making the other person great. Friendship is making the other person great. And if that is true, then the cross is the greatest example of friendship that we have ever seen. Jesus literally dying to be your friend, to make you great in God's eyes. Jesus also transforms your family. No matter what your earthly family looks like, no matter how hurtful or disappointing Uh, or maybe even abusive your family on earth is, God adopts you through Christ into his perfect family, into the communion of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Bible says he's made you sons and daughters and heirs. And this gives you, I think, tremendous freedom. You have a friend who's draining to be in a relationship with. Well, that's different when Jesus fills you up. You have a boss that hammers on you at work again and again. You'll approach that differently if you know that he can't touch your real worth in Christ. Maybe you have parents that uh, treat you like a child even though you're an adult. That's okay because Jesus has treated you with respect and honor. And now you can deal with others with the wisdom that comes from the gospel. It's not that those things don't hurt. Uh, or that they don't matter, and uh, particularly the abusive relationships that I mentioned, which need to be disclosed and dealt with accordingly. Um, But there is a sense in the gospel that um, no matter what your earthly family is like, uh, it cannot 
strike at the core of who you are uh, in terms of your heavenly family, when you've been adopted into the communion, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So the Christian worldview keeps you from being all about yourself. But it also keeps you from being all by yourself. Um, I think loneliness is a universal feeling in a lot of ways. I think it's sort of uh, the unnamed, unspoken epidemic on college campuses right now because it's very easy to be, uh, to be lonely even when you're with a lot of people. Sometimes you can be more lonely that way. And so if you're never lonely at all, I don't know that that is healthy. Uh, loneliness can sometimes be, I think, God telling us we were made for relationships. But um, he also tells us uh, in that that we're made uh, to have a yard full of growth, flowers and trees, and that you should be um, a flower or a tree in someone else's yard. So how does the gospel keep you from being all by yourself? Well, a couple ways. First of all, it keeps you from being vertically alone. To be in a relationship with Jesus Christ is to be never alone. Jesus, in his body, is right now at the right hand of the Father, but he sent his Spirit, remember, so that we would not be alone, so that he would still be with us. The Christian worldview also keeps you from being horizontally alone. So Acts 3 says that the early church was devoted to the apostles' doctrine and to uh, what we might say sharing the common life. That's what we do in the church. That's what you do here at Covenant. You share the common life. That's part of what makes Christianity such a comprehensive worldview. It has a built-in organization in which everyone matters. Everyone has a role. Everybody has a part where there's unity and diversity and mutual care in this sharing the common life. And that common life often looks pretty mundane, right? But that's okay because that is what the majority of life is. So uh, together in a local church, in the body of Christ, sharing the common life doesn't always look like um, a concert (laughs) or uh, some of these uh, super entertaining things. Um, I saw an interesting documentary recently on... uh, Netflix called Wild Wild Country. I'm not necessarily recommending it to you. I'm just saying that I saw it. And uh, Wild Wild Country is about a very um, over-the-top, and I'm forgetting the name of it right now, but a cult uh, that moved from India in the 70s to Oregon. Um, And as things often happen with cults, uh, it did not end very well. Um, And so as I was watching this, I, I remember thinking, how do people get involved in these things? Like, this is so obviously crazy to me and so obviously crazy to so many other people. But I realized as I was watching it that what this cult was offering was exactly what we offer in the church. It was offering community, a place to be with other people, a place to grow spiritually, to be uh, not alone, to be in relationship with each other. And that is what we all want because God has put that in us. But this cult was doing it, of course, in a a twisted sort of way uh, that did not end very well. So how can you be a part of growing uh, the fellowship in Christ's body, uh, even here at Covenant? Now, I say that as an outsider. Some of you know way more about fellowship here than than I ever will. But um, 
I'm going to steal a, a phrase from actually another book by Ed Welch called Side by Side. And the phrase is, uh, walk together, tell stories. Walk together, tell stories. So walking together means showing up next to someone. Okay, sometimes with uh, milk and cereal all over you. It means going with someone, uh, sometimes to places you don't want to go. Helping them, doing things together. Gradually accumulating minutes uh, with another person in different settings. Walk together. And then tell stories. As you accumulate time with someone, you start to ask them questions. Sometimes these are uh, short questions. Uh, how was your day? How was your week? Um, sometimes they, they grow as you deepen your relationship. You get longer stories like, what was it like growing up? Or um, how did you become a Christian? Or even what's keeping you from becoming a Christian? So fellowship is just people walking together and telling stories. So the gospel keeps you from being all by yourself. Jesus made you his friend. And now downstream, you can be a friend to other people. Lastly, the gospel keeps you from losing it all. Nothing hurts worse than a broken relationship, right? Um, death, divorce, uh, a breakup, uh, some sort of falling out with a, a close friend. These are the deepest sorts of pain. And that is why what Jesus did was so incredible, right? To die on the cross, to die more alone than George Bell died, more alone than any of us have ever been, that was unimaginable pain. And Jesus took it on himself so that you wouldn't have to, so that you would not have to be alone. So uh, here's what I mean more practically. The gospel keeps you from losing it all. If you're a Christian, I think you are insulated, guarded, protected from three things. The first is... Uh, death. I should say two things. The first is death. Uh, some of you in this room uh, never think about death. Um, maybe when you're on the younger end of life, you never think about it. Some of you, um, because of uh, various things that have happened to you or uh, your sort of season, uh, think about death all of the time. It is your constant companion. And there is no hope, there's no comfort in death like the gospel. Because Christianity's good news says, first of all, that death is real and that it is very painful. But also, more importantly, that Jesus has conquered it. That he died on the cross, but that he rose on the third day. And that he's right now in his body at the right hand of the Father. We can say he's at large. All right? Jesus is on the loose. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's gone because Jesus took the sting in absorbing the wrath of God on the cross and won the victory for us, for his people. The second thing that you're protected from as a Christian is an ultimate broken relationship. Uh, I'm convinced that without God, without in particular the God of the Bible, uh, you have to put your relational eggs in someone's basket, uh, somewhere. It may be your spouse, it may be uh, your children, your best friend. Uh, you have to put your relational eggs in someone else's 
basket. And when that person fails you, which they always will, then you will be devastated. When you relied on someone else to meet your deepest needs, that person is going to let you down and you are going to be devastated. But in the gospel, your ultimate relationship is secure. It can bend, but it can never break. God has promised that he'll never leave you, that he'll never forsake you. And in Jesus, you have his word made flesh. You have an ultimate friend, an ultimate family, and you have the spirit in you. So a part of that family with you all the time. If you know and believe this, then that gives you tremendous freedom. It's sort of like uh, being on a ropes course. We like ropes courses because they're fake scary, right? Um, we, we like the feeling maybe we're going to fall, uh, but the security uh, that we have with a rope. And that's why we can climb the cargo net and tightrope walk and do all those things on a ropes course because we know that we can't actually fall. And so the gospel secures your most important relationship, your relationship with God. It gives you ultimate friends, an ultimate family, and then it sets you free to love and be loved by your own friends and family uh, in this world. You can still fall, right? If you lose a friend, those broken relationships that we talked about, um, that is scary and painful, but you cannot hit the ground because in the gospel, you are roped up. I think that no other religion can offer this. I don't think that any other religion uh, can offer the relational resources that Christianity has because these things are rooted in the Trinity. They're rooted in eternity. And so we are invited into all of these uh, good things ourselves through the good news that Jesus died for our sins, that he was raised on the third day, and that he's on the loose. And that one day, by grace, through faith, the gospel tells us, uh, we'll be in a worshipful, perfect relationship for all eternity. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you have given us such uh, tremendous resources <clears throat> in the gospel that, that we are not alone, uh, that we cannot be alone when we are connected to you uh, by grace and through faith and through your spirit. And so we pray that you would convince us of that and that we would uh, know that deep inside that we would trust you in that. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.